know, living on the streets, living without housing in this country is a living hell. It is trauma at every turn. You are constantly in survival mode. You're constantly thinking about the very basic things of human life. You're thinking about where am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to be safe from the elements, from people that could hurt me? Where will I get food? Um, where will where will I shower? What will I do with my belongings? Welcome to Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. I'm Sushama Austin Connor, your host. I'm Abigail Visco Russert, co-host and co-producer. And I'm Garrett Mostowski, your producer. In this episode, we are talking about trauma and friendship. You'll hear the story of Lindsey Krinks and Open Table Nashville, a ministry aimed at disrupting cycles of poverty and how they've responded to the needs in their community during COVID-19. You'll hear from Professor John Swinton, who will deepen our understanding of Christian love, empathy, and friendship. And you will hear from rising ministry leader, Tyler Sid, who is a young church planter doing ministry at the intersection of trauma and racial justice. So my name is Lindsay Cranks. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a street chaplain and a co-founder of a homeless outreach nonprofit here called Open Table Nashville. Awesome. Um, and I'd love for you to also share with us the mission of Open Table. Yeah, our mission is to disrupt cycles of poverty, journey with the marginalized, and provide education about issues of homelessness. I want to open with um, how was Open Table impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? I mean, you and I had a little conversation and I got to hear a bit of, of the story of what's been happening and how it's disrupted your ministry and your work. But I'd love to hear how both the people you serve um, have been impacted and then also how it's impacted you personally as a leader. Open Table Nashville is a homeless outreach nonprofit. And that means instead of people coming into us to receive services, we go out to where people are and meet them where they are. That could look like an encampment. It could look like the underside of a bridge. It could look like an alley or a bench at a public park. Um, we are a boots on the ground kind of organization and we are out where our people are. Um, when it's hot, it's hot. When it's cold, it's cold. And we, um, we really try to be present and it be a consistent presence to people experiencing homelessness in Nashville. Um, when, you know, COVID-19 hit, it came, our shutdown orders came a couple weeks after um, a very destructive tornado that ripped through our city. So when COVID-19 hit, we were already doing crisis response and emergency response on the ground. And we were already exhausted. We were already um, working to not only help our people that lost their campsites and their tents and their tarps, um, but also to try to stem the tide of more people becoming homeless from um you know, impoverished neighborhoods that were hit really hard. Um, so, so when COVID-19 hit, um, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a huge lack of leadership here locally, and people were scrambling without the communication they needed and things like that. Um, you know, our, our friends on the streets rely on libraries and community centers and food pantries and meal providers. And Within a couple weeks, within the first two weeks, all of those things had shut down. They had closed their doors, leaving our friends um, without the, the basic safety nets that they would access on a day-to-day -day basis. So, um, so we really started mobilizing with other outreach groups and saying, you know, right now we've got to focus on the basic human needs. That means we've got to pause some of the long-term work we're doing and figure out how we're going to get people food because the meal providers are gone. We've got to figure out how to get people basic restrooms and sanitation um, and the ability to wash and sanitize their hands. And um, we've also got to look at uh, our shelters here. Our shelters um, started limiting the number of people that could stay there um, because they wanted to be able to properly distance, right? 
So that caused the number of people in encampments to skyrocket. Um, And we've really had to work really hard on coordinated efforts um, with other outreach groups to make sure the needs of our people don't fall through the cracks. Um, It's taken a pretty big toll on, on us. It's been incredibly consuming and it's been really difficult for our people. Who did you work with? Are there other organizations or community groups um, to try and meet some of those needs, some of the basic human needs that you're talking about? One of the really cool things that happened is um, we were able to partner with um, Glencliff United Methodist Church here, which is actually where our offices at Open Table Nashville are based. And Glencliff United Methodist Church opened up their fellowship hall for us to use as a, a kind of um, ground zero for a makeshift food box program where we would get as many donated items as we could and start assembling food boxes to take out to the campsites and to take out to some of our people that were in housing um, but now had no meal programs to go to. Um, folks with disabilities, folks in extreme poverty, folks in food deserts. And we, we opened that pretty quickly. We got that up and running within a, a week and a half or so. And that's still running and it's serving over 500 meals a week. We also partnered with another food group um, that's been giving us a lot of hot meals, which has been really nice for a lot of the encampments. Um, and we also saw the need to advocate um, with the city for the basic needs at these larger campsites. You know, our camps in Nashville they range from having one or two people to 70 to 80 and sometimes upward toward 100 people. And we knew that we needed porta potties and hand sanitizing stations and trash pickup there. Um, and that we needed to, to really, really advocate that the city wouldn't close those camps when there was nowhere else to go. So we started moving on that and we're successful in all of those um, areas because of the partnerships that we've cultivated and because of the power that we've cultivated, the advocacy power we've cultivated over the years um, within our city. I'm curious about the roadblocks along the way. Um, When you say people may be shutting down some of the encampments, what are are sort of the threats to this process of helping um, people with their basic needs um, in the wake of a tornado and, and this pandemic? So, It's really wild. Um, Before the tornado and pandemic, the city was looking at shutting down three to four of the largest camps in our city. And we were already starting to talk to attorneys about legal support. Um, And then the tornado hit and then the pandemic hit. And what's really interesting is all of a sudden people realize in the city, people realize that people are a lot safer in campsites than they even are at the more crowded shelters um, because they can distance more. If they had the basic needs met, they could actually support each other and stay safer. Um, so there was really this like paradigm shift. We'd been fighting for people's right to exist in Nashville for 10 years as long as we've existed. Um, and all of a sudden, there's this paradigm shift of the city saying, oh, we, we're starting to get it now. Like these, There's not affordable housing here. Nashville's in a huge affordable housing crisis. Um, and because of that, there's more people out. Um, so we, we did have a leg up because of the education organizing we've been doing on those issues in the past. Um, and we, as in past um, campsite shutdowns, we would have been one of the groups that said, if you arrest them, you're arresting us. Mm. You know, this is, it's not okay. They have the right to exist. There's no other options. So if they go down, we are too. And you don't want those headlines in the city. Um, So we, that's the kind of accompaniment work that we feel is so central to who we are and our work with our friends. Thanks, Lindsay. Um, This is Sushama again. Um, So I had a question for you about related to that, but more personal uh, if you could tell us how that your ministry, like you personally, have also been impacted, um, I would almost even say if you could take us maybe a day in the life of your work in ministry, um, 
the people you serve, uh, like anonymous names, but like, who are they? Who are the people mm-hmm. that keep you going that are kind of stirring your soul in this work? I can hear it. Um, and so I'm, we are equally as interested in like how you personally have been affected by COVID and by this in your leadership and ministry. Absolutely. That's such a great question. Um, I'll start by saying that, you know, one of the areas hardest hit by the tornadoes in Nashville was a historically um, black, economically disenfranchised neighborhood um, of North Nashville. And my husband and I were living there and the tornado hit our home directly and all of our neighbors and just literally its path went straight through our house. So on March 3rd, um, my husband and I, along with most of our neighbors um, and our our friends lost our home and our cars. Um, And it, you know, it was so, so surreal to, to come out of your house that's barely standing and to see power lines down and to see live wires all across the ground and to hear the sirens and to see your neighbor's houses falling in and to help pull them out of the wreckage. Um, and then to start hearing reports of one of the larger encampments that was um, just directly hit and kind of passed over. It was under a bridge. And to have friends start calling you and saying, hey, have you seen so-and-so? I heard he was under Jefferson Street Bridge. Was he hit? Is he okay? We're going right now. Can you meet us? And all the roads are shut down. Um, I have spent spent my life, the, the last more than a decade, Um, working with people, my friends who are experiencing homelessness. And I've been displaced before through gentrification, but I've never experienced being without a home. And, you know, when your home is taken away from you, it's so disruptive in your life. You're plunged into survival mode. We had community. We had support. We had resources. But so many of our friends don't have those safety nets. But even with the safety nets, it's gutting. It's utterly like it it just flips you upside down and turns your world inside out. Um, So we were, you know, moving every uh, we moved like eight times in two or four times, four or five times in two weeks, um, just staying with people here and there and there until we figured something out. So um, personally, that was really hard, and and then to add to the add to the trauma of losing our home, um, I'm now eight months pregnant. So I've also been <laughs> I've also been <laughs> oh my during life and pregnant <laughs> during the pandemic and during um, all of this upheaval, um, whether that's the tornado upheaval or oh, the racial justice um, upheaval we're seeing right now. It's such an important moment. So it is, it's personally been a really, um, really intense season, I would say, but also a really um, powerful one. Um, That reminds me that, you know, even in the midst of so much destruction and uncertainty, there is still, there are still so many possibilities opening up around us for a radically different future. And there's still so much life inside of us and around us. And we have to keep remembering that it's not just the destruction, but it's the life that we're holding as well. Um, And that, that keeps me going. Yeah. I'm one, one additional follow-up. So I'm wondering um, if you could talk more about, so being displaced and, you know, living a life for several months where you're moving from place to place, how that, connected you to people that you're serving and in in what what even more additional ways that it connected you how that displacement connected you and made you sort of realize what people are going through maybe that you didn't realize uh before i i've been doing this work for so long and i have a a family history of homelessness um with my uncles and with my cousins and um and other family members um, and I didn't know if it was possible to have any more empathy for our friends that are on the streets. But losing losing our home um, really, really made me realize how much trauma there is 
you know, living on the streets, living without housing in this country is a living hell. It is trauma at every turn. You are constantly in survival mode. You're constantly thinking about the very basic things of human life. You're thinking about where am I going to sleep tonight? Am I going to be safe from the elements, from people that could hurt me? Where will I get food? Um, where will where will I shower? What will I do with my belongings? Um, you're constantly in survival mode, and that does so much destruction to the to the human spirit. Um, it forces you to live in subhuman conditions um, without having your basic needs met. And you know what was interesting the the day after the tornado, the morning after. We had a lot of friends reach out, and they came and helped us salvage what we could from our house. The very first person that got to my house was my friend, Raphael, who I met in Tent City and is now on our board at Open Table Nashville. I met him over 10 years ago, and he he showed up, and he gave me a huge hug, and he was like, let's get rolling. What do we need to do? And I had people from... Tent City call me and say, I heard about your home. Can I come help you move? You know, these are folks with nothing. These are folks that we're helping. And it just reminded me of how intertwined our liberation is with others. Mm -hmm. Some of us get really, really, we really distance ourselves from folks that are on the bottom by layering security after security around us and thinking, well, if I can have this job or this home or this paycheck or whatever, I'm safe. I'm not them. But it doesn't take much at all. Like we're so close. We're just a tragedy or a disaster away. And our liberation is bound up together. I never anticipated needing help from Raphael or my friends from Tent City. Um, but to have them reach out to me was the most moving thing. And that's happened over the years in other ways, too. To hear Lindsay talk about our collective liberation in this way was stirring. Her organization, Open Table Nashville, uses friendship as a guiding theme. Lindsay talks about the empathy she has gained, even after over 10 years of doing this work. Perhaps empathy is our pathway to being able to see and notice the places where oppression is at work to notice the places where ministry is needed. So we talked with Professor John Swinton, who sheds light on love, empathy, and friendship. Okay, um, well, my name is John Swinton. I'm Professor in Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland in the, in the UK. I've worked here for, I don't know, 22 years, which is it's about a lifetime. Um, my background was, was in mental health nursing. I nursed for 16 years. Um, then I worked in chaplaincy for a little while. Uh, and then I moved into academia in what would it be, 1990 or thereabouts. And I've stayed there ever since because I like it there. It's good. I think, you know, you're talking about really this going back to an old old norms versus new norms. Yeah. And I wonder if you can help us through a lens of theology and disability sort of cast a vision for what a new normal could look like. Well, a new normal, I think, it begins to learn the lessons that we've gained from, from uh, the experience of uh, uh, COVID-19. And part of that is that we have to find uh, different ways of articulating and expressing our love. Because when you think about it, you know, Christianity is all about love, God is love. Um, but love is a deeply embodied thing. You know, to love somebody, to reveal your love to them, you have to place your body in a particular way. You have to have certain gestures. You have to have certain eye contact and various other things. All of these things are beginning to shift and change with the kind of uh, retraining that we've had to go through to deal with the virus. So what does life look like when you can no longer shake hands with somebody that you care for? What does life look like when you um, uh, can no longer have the, the common cup? What does life look like when you can no longer simply go and visit people that you would naturally visit or even unnaturally visit? So my sense is that... Uh, what, one of the things that's happening is that 
we're beginning to um, have to rethink the ways in which we embody and practice love, which opens up space for innovation because, for example, um, there are some people with certain conditions that have no desire to um, embrace you or no desire to have physical contact with you. In the old norm, you find that really, really weird and you may avoid that person. In the new norm, that actually might be the way many of us have to be at a particular moment. So we may actually learn how to be with people who uh, articulate their love uh, in a different way uh, 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 because we have to use our bodies in a different way. But there's also, we have to think about you know, the, way, the way that we... Um, if you think about the issue of masks, for example, it looks like we're going to be wearing masks for quite some time. There's a, a really uh, beautiful new video by um, Michael Verdi on dementia. Um, and right at the beginning of it, um, there's an a interview or conversation with a, an African-American woman who um, has advanced dementia. And they're having a conversation. And at one point she says, you know, I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am, but I know that uh, I'm hopeful, something like that. Mm. And then she looks around and she looks up and she looks across at the person who's speaking and says, and I look at your face and I see a picture of love. I see love. And so, I think that's absolutely a beautiful picture of it. Of, 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 you know, we're called to reflect the grace and the love of God. When she looked at this woman in the midst of her confusion and memory loss, she could see love. Um, and so you could say, well, we must emulate that. We must begin to have our own faces as picture of love. But what do you do when you've got a mask on? How does your face become a picture of love when you have a mask on? Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that in the context of, of a care home where you're constantly having to um, wear masks because you don't want to infect vulnerable people, it's a completely different way of being. You, you, can, you, you can articulate love through your eyes, and that, that might be a skill that we have to, to develop. But the fact that your face is no longer available in the context of love is going to be really, really difficult for the way in which you communicate with people, and particularly people that don't have language or who mm-hmm. may be confused or who may find this kind of thing difficult. So I think that whole way of rethinking the nature of communicating love is interesting. Professor, I wanted to follow up on what you were talking about, about love. And I'd I'd like to throw in actually love and empathy, because in this moment, it feels like we're called to really love one another and take care of one another. I mean, there's no greater love at this moment during COVID than to be physically distant, like you said, to, to, you know, try to help our neighbor in the best way that we can. All the things that we're told we're supposed to do, we're supposed to do. But yet in this moment, we, we have politicized it here in the U.S. We have pushed people away. We have acted as though it doesn't exist. I I actually um, say we're in three pandemics, Um, but for the, but for our, the sake of our podcast, it's two, but I mean, for a lot of us, the pandemic began January, 2016, uh, the racial pandemic has been ongoing and the COVID pandemic is March or yeah. February. And so for me, these three pandemics say so much about how love is something we say, but never do. And empathy is something that isn't, I guess it's an ideal. I'd like to think it's achievable, but it feels like an ideal because we've, we've like, we figured out a way to make COVID political. Yeah. And I don't know how we do that. But yet I do know. So I'm wondering what, what you are thinking, what's going on um, with you you there. Are, are you seeing some similar things, um, what you think of us in the U.S. around this? And what, what how do we, when, when you're actually really called, when it's a matter of life and death and we can't reach the heights to actually love our neighbor, what that what is that? Who are we? Who are you? That's a very good question. Who are you? <laughs> Who are we? It's not for me as an outsider to tell you the truth. <laughs> you have to work out for yourself. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask my but, therapist. <laughs> I'll be a therapist if you want. Right. I, well, see, I think um, empathy is interesting because um, empathy is the imaginative projection of uh, uh, 
your thinking and feelings about something that's going on outside of yourself onto somebody else in another situation. And so you need to have a certain kind of imagination to be to empathise. And so but imagination doesn't come to you from nowhere. Imagination, you, you get your imagination from culture, from religion, from philosophy. So imagination is that it kind of contains the ideas, the concepts, the values, the plausibility structures, what you think is plausible, not plausible within a, a, a context. Um, all of that goes into making up your imagination. So it's not really, and, and imagination is central to empathy, so it's not really just a matter of we must be more empathetic. Mm-hmm. You also have to have a different kind of imagination. So if you have a context where people's imaginations have been fired and fueled by uh, negative things or difficult things or things, whatever things, but I won't name it because, I'm, like I say, I could talk to you about the UK more than I can talk to you about the, the US. Sure. But if you're constantly being... Uh, bombarded with, with messages through social media and through uh, television and stuff, you create a particular form of imagination which you then use to empathise, that is, to reach out beyond yourself to try to understand what other people are doing. Uh, and that's where the problem is. Because if you can't actually empathise in a way that reflects the reality of what you're looking at, but only reflects the reality of what you've been taught to imagine, then you have all sorts of difficulties. Mm. And so a lot of the, the political rhetoric around um, uh, COVID, for example, the idea that it's, it's, it's a mild flu and all these things, people take that on board. Mm-hmm. And then, then they project that onto people who are ill and think, well, it's, 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 it doesn't particularly matter. And it's certainly here at the beginning of the pandemic, the general consensus from the government was we need to develop a, a herd mentality, which basically means that a high percentage of people need to get it and die before we, um, before everybody can be kind of become immune to it. And then suddenly they realised that um, that would mean that a significant number of the population would die. So they decided not to do that, thankfully. Um, but you still have got people saying, "Well, actually, it's not so bad because it's only people with pre-underlying conditions." That catch energy, or it's only the elderly, uh, and that was a kind of that's a, that's one way of alleviating your anxiety. It's true, but when you think about what you're saying there, is that that's ah, okay. It's only the weakest amongst us. Like I'm, I'm strong, so I should be fine. Um, and if you have that as the way that you're looking out on the world, then you do have a problem. And I think that politics uh, and politicians very often have that problem that they, they don't have the right kind of imagination to be able to see what's going on, in a, 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 or maybe they see what's going on but don't particularly mind because they have other important things to to work themselves through. But that idea of imagination and empathy, I think, empathy is important. And I think what what the, what the gospel it, it, it should be doing is given as a new mode of imagination. When Paul talks about transforming our minds. That means you're taking the, the gospel narratives, the stories, the perspectives that are taught to you through the history of the Christian tradition and allowing that to cleanse your mind, to, to reshape and reform it. So that when you look at the world, you see things in principle through the eyes of Jesus. And that, that, to have your mind transformed in that way is to really to see with the eyes of Christ. Um, the question that all of us should ask ourselves, do we do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to jump off from there and um, ask you a question about friendship because the one of the other people that we interviewed for this episode, Lindsay, who I mentioned, talks all about the people she serves and, and ministers alongside. And as she does that, she talks, she uses this language of friendship. And we would love for you to help us think theologically about Friendship, why is friendship important and or significant in the Christian life, in the Christian story? Well, I think one of the main reasons it's uh, important is because Jesus marks friendship out as as, uh, or renames uh, discipleship as friendship. So in John's Gospel, he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. So therefore, they have a, at that point, they have a complete change of identity from people who are simply serving God to people who are friends with God. 
Uh, that's pretty radical that the God of the, who creates the universe and enters into it in, in humility and then offers friendship to human beings is, is a very powerful thing. And then if you look at the kinds of friendship that Jesus had, it's, it's always with the poor, the marginalized, the outcast in that sense. So Christ-like friendship is not based on the principle of like attracts like, like in the same way as perhaps our friendships are. We tend to become friends with people quite like ourselves. Um, but but the, the principle of the incarnation is that, that God, who is radically unlike human beings, becomes a human being and offers friendship. So friendship is the, the basic um, building blocks of the kingdom of God. But it's not just any kind of friendship. It's Christ-like friendship. And so we take the shape and form of, of our friendship from Jesus, and then we take that friendship into the world, which is difficult because people don't necessarily want that. You know, Christ-like friendship is very, very difficult. It's, it's sacrificial. It's a matter of giving yourself in ways that, that are really difficult. But it is the way in which you begin to reveal who God is or manifest who God is. Taking on a Christ-like shape and form in our friendships sounds a lot like what Lindsey Krinks and Open Table Nashville is doing. Perhaps Open Table, as an organization, is a model of what it looks like to reimagine the ways we befriend and behold others, or a model for the ways we embody and practice love. We found even more models for how to reimagine practices of love in the midst of multiple pandemics with Tyler Sitt a young church planter in Minneapolis. Hi everyone, my name is Tyler Sitt. I am the church planter and pastor of New City Church in South Minneapolis. Awesome. And um, Tyler, to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about this church plant. Tell us about being um, a young leader planting a church and tell us a little bit of the story of your church. So first off, church planting is amazing, and I didn't have church planting spoken into my life until uh, the very end of seminary, and if I didn't have church planting spoken into my life, I probably wouldn't have really considered it. So um, I just wanted, I always like to start off these interviews just naming like, if you haven't considered church planting, seriously discern about it, uh, because um, there's kind of this trope of church planters being like white guys with big arms and great teeth. And <laughs> what I have found <laughs> is you don't need to be a white guy or have big arms or have great teeth to <laughs> create communities that follow Jesus. Hmm, uh, thank God. I love it. So, right, um, right. so I definitely want to preface with that. But yeah, so New City Church is a multi-ethnic church. We reflect the racial demographics of the city of Minneapolis almost to the percentage point in mm. African-American, Latinx, white, and Asian populations, um, not in Native populations, or we have a significant Somali and Ethiopian immigrant population, mm. and we're, we're not representative in that way. Uh, we are probably um, uh, 50%... Uh, queer people um mm. it it seems like more and more people are coming out every day so it's that number keeps bumping up but <laughs> um uh really significant uh queer community i'm an openly gay uh pastor in the united methodist church so um kind of primed the pump for that and then I, something else that people are usually interested in is um about 40 percent of the people who worship at new city don't actively identify as Christian. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of folks who went to church and then got really burned out by it or um, kind of bored by it. And then there's a handful of folks who never went to church at all and uh, who just are deeply hungry for something more. And they feel like New City is the place where they can explore that. Wow. And, and when did you plant the church, Tyler? We started a weekly worship service on uh, November of 2017. Okay. Okay. And yeah, and it's just been such a journey. Like, um, uh, I mean, most recently, obviously, like New City Church is a short walk away from where George Floyd was murdered. Mm. Uh, my apartment is like, my old apartment is like literally on the same block as <laughs> where that happened. 
Um, and, and New City is equidistant to the third precinct that burned down. So like in terms of the uprising, we were right there, uh, right, right there. You talked about the tr- where your church is in Minneapolis. Like, can you talk about um, your congregants, your the, the people, the community of the church, and what's happened during the life of the church post George Floyd's uh, death? Like, what what's happened at your church that that is different, or that is um, any programming or ideas you've had around that event happening? Ways people, yourself, or other people in the church have changed as a result of it, if they have, or if this is something that's been going on in Minneapolis, it, it hasn't made you change. It's just made you more aware, kind of mm. confirming some of your ideas about the about the community. Yeah, so New City about a year ago did some community listening. It's a whole long story, but we did a lot of community listening and we realized that uh, we are really being called to do work around trauma, specifically racialized trauma. So that uh, uh, has been an influence in New City Church as we continue our theological imagination of um, uh, the incarnation. And as we've been uh, talking through all of this, we... um, discern that we need to start something that supports people of color in accessing trauma care, trauma-informed care. So uh, we established uh, the Incarnation Fund, and that is a fund that supports um, people of color in accessing not only um, trauma therapy, we especially favor somatic experiencing, if any of you are familiar with that, but also um, spiritual direction and nature-based therapy because um, we believe that uh, Jesus, through the incarnation, took on a body, and God became a body, and therefore, if we get to know our own bodies better, then we can get to know God better, and trauma is like a tool of the empire to disrupt all of that. So, uh, So we see that all very missionally aligned, and we've done a lot of theology around that. All that was started a year ago, and then George Floyd happens and it was like very evident to me that that past year was like God's rehearsal for us to be able to show up in big ways for this, because like, obviously the trauma of, um, of such acute violence happening so close to our church building and for that violence to be met with such a, array of um, indifference, of victim blaming, of we need to change, but we can't change in the way that you say that we need to change. <laughs> so like um, all of that is is compounding trauma. And I'm not a mental health expert, but I am a church planter. So uh, we created um, like the night that the news came out about George Floyd, we hosted a vigil. It, I think like uh, 20,000 views was the last time that I saw it, but it was like more, it was more well attended of any digital event that we've had, including like all of our Easter's combined. <laughs> and, wow. um, and, and then we started uh, a black healing circle. Um, we started a, a curriculum and group for parents of white children, because one of the needs that we found was um, like, uh, a lot of parents in our community were like, I don't want my kid to grow up to be the white supremacist who came into our town and like broke a bunch of windows and lit buildings on fire and targeted black churches. And we're really looking to create a response that's driven and, um, and uh, centering people of color in the experience. Cause I, I think like one of the things that we see in Minneapolis, Minneapolis is such a predominantly white city that um, a lot of the responses are geared towards assuaging white guilt more than healing black communities. And like, we know that that will never result in our collective liberation. So uh, we're trying to continually be telling stories that center particularly black voices, but just voices of color in general. All right. So I'm going to have you jump into, you know, I'm, I'm realizing, gosh, we really need to ask the COVID question. <laughs> um, oh, the what? The COVID <laughs> Is question. Is something going on right now? I know, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm like... in some pandemics, <laughs> right? Oh. <laughs> oh. 
Um, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, okay. I know. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, heard about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested and, and feel free to, you know, answer this from an in- intersectional place. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very curious about how COVID-19 has impacted your your church um, and the ways that you are ministering and your congregation is ministering, you know, how has that changed? Um, yeah. Ha, ha, how has that impacted what, what you're up to? Oh, every single yeah. thing. Yeah. Every, <laughs> every yeah. corner right, of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly every programmatic corner because all of a sudden like overnight we launched an online campus and our real life campus is closed and our online campus is where everything is happening um so like already programmatically but i i just i mean to just name a a note on our political analysis um so i'm asian american and i think that um over the past several years uh, there's been kind of this like awkward acknowledgement of like, yeah, Asians are like people of color, but like the dimensions of, of what that marginalization looks like in the Asian American experience is extremely ambiguous and is usually not brought up in race conversations. And so when COVID-19 happened and all of a sudden uh, Asian people were getting like beaten in the street and uh, and like not allowed to show up to work and stuff, it, I do think it, it uh, created an awakening of like, wait a second, there are, there are fault lines present in our racial understanding in America and uh, whatever like, you know, um, uh, model minority stories were kind of like whitewashed over those fault lines. When a crisis happens, all of a sudden they reappear and they're, they're just as bad as they were before. Right. Um, so I do think that as an Asian American, there is, um, uh, there is a mobilization within Asian America, uh, both to interrogate internalized anti-blackness and to, um, be a little more persistent about naming the experience of Asian Americans. And um, I believe it was, there was a Gallup poll that broke down by race, who has been showing up to the protests and who believes that the protests are going to be effective. And uh, it showed that in terms of ratio of population, Asian Americans were the most represented people group showing up to Black Lives Matter protests. And I I believe that that represents kind of a sea change in, um, in uh, Asian American activism, uh, contemporarily, at least. Um, So I I think that that's really, really important uh, to name. Secondly, in terms of, uh, yeah, (laughs) in terms of running an online ministry, like, all of our worship went online. All of our groups are online. All of our, uh, uh, the black healing circle is online. And I think that, um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny because we spent a whole year investing our theological chips into the theology of the incarnation. And now <laughs> we're like, don't let your bodies near each other. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you do, don't incarnate your relationship. <laughs> God. Right. So, uh, um, so there is kind of a, um, uh, there, there's something to be said about, uh, like how to do meaningful theology there. What I've been pleasantly surprised to discover though, is that there are a lot of people from all around the country who have been looking for churches like New City Church and there's nothing in their context. And now they're able to join into the fullness of, our life as a church from a distance. Like we um, just, after our worship service, we do a Zoom call to do kind of a conversation. And uh, we had someone from Michigan join who was like, I just came out, my whole life's a mess and this church is exactly what I need right now. And I think that that's kind of the opportunity of, of the moment that we're in is like, we need to, our ministry imagination needs to be global because we have access to a global network. Yeah. And, uh, and that certainly is best done when rooted in a deeply contextual, deeply neighborhood-based ministry imagination. 
but the conversations can be broadened to the whole planet. And so I think that what, what I've been finding is that New City Church has been dreaming way too small and mm. that this uh, COVID-19 has provided a lot of impetus for us to really imagine like what would it look like to live out our values in a global public square called the internet. Mm. Mm. What advice you have for other emerging leaders like yourself in this moment, for other church planters? You know, what happens now? I think that we will not, we are not the same society and we cannot be that we came into this, this COVID pandemic being. What do you have to say as we figure our way out of this, um, hoping to make our, you know, citizenry better and healthier and happier and listening to people and loving people. What, what do you say to emerging leaders um, as you reflect on that? Um, in the, in the book by um, uh, the book, another way, which is a book on leadership by Stephen Lewis, Matthew Williams and Dory Baker. They talk about the difference between a warrior hero and a warrior healer. And uh, the hero is the one that the community sends out to fight the dragon. Like you go to the front, uh, be courageous and bold, say a really charismatic speech, go and be the warrior hero. And a warrior healer is someone who convenes community and works on the development and the wholeness of the whole community so that when the dragon comes, the whole community can respond. And I think that uh, right now, leadership formation is definitely geared towards warrior heroes, but we're encountering situations that require warrior healers. And uh, so my my advice would be uh, to, to consider yourself a public healer in the community and uh, your job is to convene people and to uh, convene people in such a way that each of the people present become more capable of affecting change in their community than they were before. And to undergird all of that transformation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that like this is that's always true, but it's especially true in the situations that we're facing because so many of the challenges that we're facing are not acute threats like dragons. Like COVID nineteen is like a fraction of the size of a moat of dust. Like it is small, it's imperceptible, and it's deadly in a kind of like a broad social way. But it's not like a cheetah that is hunting you. It's not like a bear, you know, it's not like one acute thing that you can figure out to master. It requires a a type of social agreement that the, wherein the entire community like advocates for our own healing. And just to name it, like, I think that COVID-19 is kind of a practice run for climate change. Like (laughs) the same things that we see happening in COVID-19, the disproportionate impacts to black and brown communities the uh, uh, toxic masculinity, screwing up everything. <laughs> uh, like all of those themes are going to happen on a global scale with climate change. And our ability to survive those crises are going to largely depend on our ability to move collectively. I, I think that, um, you know, in terms of racism, we talk about like there's COVID-19 and then there's COVID sixteen nineteen, the legacy of, yes. of uh, slavery, you know, four hundred years ago. Yes, and it's like that is going to require such fundamental shifts for our imagination of what it means to be an American that it can't be on the shoulders of one person. Like I, I definitely encourage people to vote. Mm-hmm. I definitely encourage people to vote. Yes. But that voting should probably feel a little bit more like an enrollment into change rather than a delegation of responsibility to an elected official. Like we don't need to elect another hero. We need to create a movement where more and more people are seeing themselves as the agents of healing in their community in tandem with the Holy Spirit. And that's how we see Lindsay. In fact, that's how we see Professor Swinton too. And Reverend Tyler Sitt. And our listeners. We see you as agents of healing in your communities, as agents of change, working in tandem with the Holy Spirit. 
we have to give Lindsay the final word. And we asked her one of our favorite interview questions. Is protest worship? So for me, and for a lot of the people I know here in Nashville, protest is absolutely worship. I, I think back to um, 1965, when Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was marching alongside King in Alabama. And he said this really beautiful quote when he was reflecting back on that march. He said, for many of us, the march was about protest and prayer. Legs are not lips and walking is not kneeling. And yet our legs uttered songs. Even without words, our march was worship. I felt as if my legs were praying. And, you know, I've, I've been in the movement community here for over a decade, um, for 13 years. And I've been, there's no telling how many actions and protests and marches I've been to and helped with. (laughs) But when you get in deep, um, and even sometimes on your first one, there's, there's a spirituality to these things. There's a, you know, whether you're, whether you're chanting, there's a call and response to the chants. There's this, there's this rhythm and movement um, that is very liturgical. Um, there's this prophetic fire that you can feel um, like emanating from people's bones and hearts. Um, it's, it's so spiritual. And I've actually... I actually have come to find God so much more on the streets, mm. um, on the streets during actions, on the streets um, in the campsites where people are sharing what they have and make sure no one goes without. I find God on the streets more than I find God in um, in buildings and in um, in churches and faith communities that shut their doors and protect their members and and think their salvation is a personal one and not a social one. Um, it's where, it's where I, I feel most alive and where I, I feel God most tangibly moving in our midst. So for me, protest is absolutely worship and, and that you can see the human spirit in protest saying, we believe another world is possible. Um, another world is yet to come. This current world is not as it should be. Um, and we are using our bodies to bear witness to that, to the injustice, but also to the possibilities. And that's why um, I can't imagine um, not being involved in, in such public worship like that. Thank you for joining us for Being Church in the Time of COVID, a podcast from Princeton Theological Seminary that engages the experiences and insights of pastors, theologians, and rising ministry leaders during the pandemics of 2020. You can learn more about Open Table Nashville at opentablenashville.org. All of our interviewees have current or forthcoming books. You can find Lindsay Crink's forthcoming book, Praying With Our Feet, on Amazon or through Baker Publishing. Professor John Swinton's forthcoming book is available through Amazon and entitled Finding Jesus in the Storm. Tyler Sitt's forthcoming book, Staying Awake, is featured on his website, tylersit.com. That's T-Y-L-E-R-S-I-T.com. Tyler's social media handle is at tylersit. And as always, you can learn more about Princeton Theological Seminary at ptsem.edu. Thank you for joining us.